Hey everybody, and hello humans. This is Not A Robot's Marvel Weekly Comic Review Show. This week, we don't have any King and Black tie-ins to cover, but we don't have any shortage of comics. This week, we're covering Nonstop Spider-Man number one, Thor and Loki Double Trouble number one, Children of the Atom number one, Deadpool's Nerdy 30 number one, Immortal Hulk number 44, Strange Academy number nine, Eternals number three, Taskmaster number four, Daredevil number 28, and Wolverine Black, White, and Blood number four. My name is Kirk. I was bit by a radioactive microphone, and I've got some amazing co-hosts here with me. Nicole? Hey, so it's Nicole. How's everyone doing? Good. And Brandon? Hello there. We're here to summarize, analyze, and editorialize every issue we cover without worrying about what the publishers think. We are on Twitter at NotARobotComics. I'm on Twitter at Kirk Hopko. Nicole is on Twitter at MaddieNickNick. And Brandon's on Twitter at Chandler the Changing Man with underscores between those words. My Instagram feed's going to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) We answer all show mail sent to notarobotcomics at gmail.com. The next part is dedicated to those that support us with their hard-earned money, but that's not the only way you can. Like, subscribe, download, and share our episodes as much as possible. It helps get the word out, and that's the best kind of advertising. Now is the time to say a big thank you to the humans who help support the podcast. They subscribe to our Patreon with tiers starting at just $1 a month so that we can make sure to keep bringing you more content. This is the Not A Robot Must Be A Human shout-out and roll call. And that shout-out goes to our humans, Weird Science Jim, Blue Mondays, Hollister, and Roch Crockett. A big salute to all of you and an even bigger thank you. So what are you waiting for? Sign up now and show us you might just be a human after all and get a shout-out on the Not A Robot Must Be A Human roll call. All right, guys. Anything new going on this week? Um, I don't think so. Not over here. Yeah, no, not not much to say. Guess the big build-up to uh, Falcon Winter Soldier, right? Oh, yeah. Should be fun. Right? C- couple new uh, clips shown on social media just to, to get the hype generated. Very exciting. We would also like to draw attention to, some of you may have noticed, Not A Robot Podcasts is expanding to the Not A Robot Podcast Network. Uh, The Not A Robot banner is now not going to include just comics, but there's also an anime show, a TV and movies show, gaming show, horror podcast, war of film, and many more coming to notarobotpodcast.com. Come join us for the ride as we get bigger and bigger, humans. You ain't seen nothing yet. And now we're going to jump into our week's reviews and we're going to start at the top with non-stop spider-man number one this is brought to us by writer joe kelly artist on pencils chris Bacciolo, inks tim townsend color artist marcio meniz and letterer vcs travis lanham non-stop spider-man number one jumps in with a bit of an action-oriented approach to spider-man we see him jumping and immediately assessing the types of decisions he's made as he can see thugs or highly armed, highly equipped, well-trained thugs pulling up to an apartment that we're not sure is Peter's at first, but we later learn is not. As he goes through these very quick lightning round decisions and analyzing what's going through his head, and we're seeing sort of this dynamic Peter process as he's going through, we see him fight off these thugs, and then it starts shedding the backstory that a, a friend of his has just died, and in a sort of um, suspect way. And him and another friend have been dealing with it sort of together, and as the fight with these thugs really kicks into high gear, 
he also receives a message that the mysterious drug that his friend had taken uh, before he died, his other friend who had been dealing with the grief has now just taken and he has to go from this fight to the scene of someone who may have just overdosed on a mysterious drug and it sort of earns the title nonstop Spider-Man from there. The action in this comic is really just high octane right out of the get-go. And it ends after that with a teaser of what's to come with a very non-Spider-Man villain, uh, Baron Zemo meeting with a group of heads of Hydra and showing that he has a disdain for Hydra's current objective and that he has his own plans. And we can see that he's going to be involved with the Spider-Man play. And if you were reading any of the news pieces that led up to nonstop Spider-Man, you know, they wanted to tell a story that didn't read exactly like a Spider-Man story, but still captured his essence. And I'm, I'm honestly really excited about where this one's going to go. The, the story led a left a lot open in terms of how, how Peter Parker and Baron Zemo are really going to come head to head. And, and I can't wait. What were your thoughts, Nicole? So I, I really liked it, but I will say that the Spider-Man comics, I feel a, a little bit more in the other Spider-Man, but also this one. It's just, I don't know. It, it's a little bit, it's not boring, but it feels very formulaic. Um, and like, you know, it's a classic Spider-Man. Who doesn't love Spider-Man? But I also felt, for me personally, like, it seems to be more targeted toward, like, a younger audience than what I am. And um, so I did like it, but it was just kind of not really my thing. I gave it a six. Awesome. And Brandon? Yeah, I, um, I definitely thought it was an interesting approach. Uh, it's great to see Chris Pachalo back doing Spider-Man. I think he does a, a very solid job particularly when paired with this colorist um and it's also great to see joe kelly back doing uh doing spider-man and doing him in a way that's unconventional just kind of constant motion constant action but i do agree that there are definitely some moments that are trying to be a bit more trendy trying to appeal to a, a, a younger audience and i don't know how that may work with everyone. I know that there were definitely some moments that didn't entirely jive with me, but I, like I said, I did really like the approach, um, and I, I found the backup story particularly interesting, especially with the introduction of Baron Zemo, and also artistically in the backup story. You know, Dale Eaglesham is someone who never misses, and I, I just loved seeing his rendering of, of Baron Zemo. So I felt like it was a pretty solid debut. Um, if you're looking for a, a spider-man story that's a bit different because i would say it's not entirely conventional a little non-conventional in the use of constant motion but definitely there's some formulaic moments but if you're looking for something a little more offbeat i'd definitely say check it out so i'd probably give this one about a seven and a half maybe a seven all right and yeah i i i was pleasantly surprised by this one it was you are right that it is formulaic in its spider-man approach but it but it works for me and I am excited to see where it goes. And I really hope that it wasn't just overhyped in what I was reading about what the writer wanted to do with this, how he wanted to sort of reflect Zemo and Spider-Man off each other in a new way that neither of those heroes and villains have ever been able to do with their usual rogues gallery. I'm excited to see where it's going to go. I gave it a 7.5. I also really just like the way they depict Spider-Sense in this specific style. Yeah. 
And it's not completely unique to this issue, I don't think. I think I've seen it maybe once or twice before, where Spider-Sense is commonly shown with just, like, lines and then Peter explaining what he's sensing. But this one had sort of this dramatic text appearing behind him saying, get down, look behind you, move. (laughs) And as a aesthetic choice, it really worked for me, and it's not something I'm used to seeing in a lot of Spider-Man styles. So I gave this one a 7.5. And with that said... Let's move on to Thor and Loki Double Trouble number one. Take it away, Nikki. So this one is, it can be best described as a Thor and Loki anime. It is basically your typical Thor and Loki story. It starts off with Thor, you know, showing off, showing how strong he is, got Mulder there. And then, you know, Loki comes up, they have a little banter. And, um... Loki turns himself into a horse, and then Thor is seen beating up the horse, and so people scatter. It's a pretty typical story. It was very cute, for sure. Um, You don't really learn a whole lot. I kind of feel like most of this wasn't... I don't know. It didn't feel like a story. It felt more like a skit. But it ends with a huge dragon coming down, and... Falling in love with Loki and not liking Thor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And and what did you think of it? So I thought it was really cute. You know, who doesn't love the Thor and Loki dynamic? (laughs) They're they're a classic duo, everybody. You know, it was very entertaining, but um, it doesn't really feel like a first issue of like a story. It, it, It very much feels like you're already supposed to know these guys, although it does a very good job of portraying them. I gave this a seven. All right. And Brandon? Yeah, this uh, this story was definitely very cute. Um, particularly in the art style. I think that just kind of goes without saying. It's got a very like childlike almost animation style to it. And I, I think maybe this book might be more satisfying for a younger audience. Uh, I, I, at least I know I felt that way just because it, it felt, I don't know, it felt very childish at times. And it was kind of hard for me to get into it as much as I might have liked. So I didn't really have a lot of thoughts on this one. Just I felt like, you know, maybe this isn't necessarily geared towards me. I thought the interactions between Loki and Thor were pretty entertaining, but again, in kind of like a childlike way. So I, I gave this one a, a, a 5.5 out of 10, maybe a 6 on a good day. Yeah, with this one, I felt... I felt that the comic itself was enjoyable, and we touched on this a little bit last week where some of the comics that, in hindsight, you realize that they might be aimed at a different audience or they might be uh, telling a very specific story, it it struggled with me in that way, not only because it was awfully childlike and it it very much read like an episode of a children's cartoon. Mm. We have the boastful jock and then the, the cunning mischief trickster tells him oh go steal this thing it'll be great and then he he falls for it and then oh no something bad happens because of it it's very very formulaic children's entertainment in that way was it well drawn yeah it was cute and was it uh well written the character dynamic is fun but it does make me think and this is probably going to be a discussion that we could take to an entire bonus episode. Yeah. But walking into this comic, I didn't assume, and I sh- maybe I should have by the art style, but I, I don't know. I didn't assume that we'd get something that was entirely outside of canon. 
Yeah, I wasn't expecting that either. <laughs> so it just being a, oh, Asgard currently is happy-go-lucky and everyone in Asgard is nice. And we don't even know if the um, if the Earth is remotely aware of what's going on with Asgard. But they're just goofing around with horses and dragons in Asgard. And, like It was very not what's happening in the comics between Thor and Loki. They're not just... <laughs> goofy brothers like giving each other oh this guy behind the camera like (laughs) so and and it does make me wonder like how often should marvel make clear like hey this comic is outside of a continuity if you're looking to read what's happening with thor and loki right now is this the comic that's going to do that and in that regard i don't think it is but i don't know if that holds any quality against the comic it's just something that i've observed. I mean, i know yeah i think this is like a, a spiritual successor to another book that they did similar to this i'm pretty sure it was the same writer and artist with spider-man and venom so i think you can mm. just kind of you know look at it and say well this probably isn't in any kind of continuity this is just kind of geared towards a you know a younger audience and obviously they're not going to be worried about what's currently going on in Thor and all that stuff. They don't know and they don't need to know because it's, it's simplistic enough that you can just kind of jump in and read it. Um, which is why, like I said, I think it works better targeted for a younger audience, but yeah, it didn't really work as much for me. And that's probably just cause I'm reading Thor separately. So, uh, you know, it's like, I don't really, <laughs> this doesn't really have any place in my catalog if I'm being honest. Right, yeah. I ended up giving it a six because it was certifiably enjoyable, mm. but it really wasn't for me, and it's something that I could see other people enjoying a lot more. Mm. With that said, yeah, it definitely, at the end of it, I def- I just felt like, you know, we've got a Beta Ray Bill series coming up. We've got Thor oh, ongoing right now. I so can't wait for that Beta Ray Bill series. <laughs> right? I'm really excited. Yeah. And so with all of that there, I was kind of hoping that, you know, even if it was without knowing about the double trouble sort of being its own thing, I kind of was wondering like, Oh, are we going to get a Thor and Loki buddy cop at the same time as this beta Ray bill that Mm -hmm. that could be a really cool sort of scene. And this one ending up being its own sort of mini cartoon series, or I really like what Nicole said, just sort of a a Thor and Loki anime. (laughs) It's, it's funny. And, and it, and it works. It just doesn't work. I don't think, uh, five stars across the board. Yeah. yeah. And so Thor and Loki double trouble was brought to us by writer Mariko Tamaki, artist Gurahiru and letterer VCs, Ariana Mar. So now we've got children of the Adam. Number one by writer Vita Ayala, artist Bernard Chang, color artist, Marcello Maiolo and lettering by Travis Lanham. Children of the Adam introduces us to a new young mutants team. We've got cherub Marvel guy, Daycrawler, Gimmick, and Cyclops Lass. Which, by the way, I'm taking points off just for the name of Cyclops Lass. I don't like it. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Joking aside, we're introduced to this new team of people with very similar powers. Cyclops Lass, obviously, being Cyclops. Cherub being Angel. Daycrawler being Nightcrawler. Gimmick being Gambit. And Marvel guy, I honestly didn't have a note for who he was because I didn't get enough panels paying attention to him. I don't think. I'm assuming just Marvel girl. Oh, duh, yeah, probably. Jean Gray. Jean Gray. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I don't think I was thinking uh, that through when I took these notes. Yeah. So we're introduced to them fighting off a team of mutants who lost their powers in the in the No More Mutants debacle, and they have now taken to a life of crime. So the these kids they fight them off. They they do okay, and then they have to make a quick getaway because not only the it have a pretty violent scene right now that they're getting away, but this is taking place during Outlawed, and it's there's a minor tie-in to Outlawed here where they talk about how young superheroes aren't supposed to be operating right now. Doesn't really go into it in depth, but you know, we get a hint on it and we get a couple panels in Krakoa of the X-Men, Storm, Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean Grey talking about their responsibility. To, to kids like these who aren't coming to Krakoa. And they, they talk about whether or not they should force them to come to Krakoa because it's their home, because they're in danger. They sort of talk a little bit about the ramifications of where they're at, where not just mutants are choosing not to come to Krakoa, but young mutants who every person on their team has been there to see a young mutant suffer horrible consequences because an X-Men wasn't there to help them and they they have to deal with these choices and it's a really interesting conversation for the few panels that we get to explore that then it cuts into the sort of the children of the atoms daily high school life we find out that they they haven't wanted to go to krakoa yet for sort of an unknown reason they then they talk a lot about their lives why they don't want to leave we see a little bit more of that how the rest of the world views Krakoa and how the mutants are building an army to take over everyone. Just a couple different perspectives here. And then a lot about just high school romance and who likes who and who's dramatic and what it is to be a teenager and not fit in. Yeah. It's, it's all very in line with uh, a lot of iconic X-Men motifs, a lot of young teenagers who are different from their peers. It's, it's definitely something that people have identified with in X-Men literature before, so I'm not surprised to see it here. And then the piece ends with them finally deciding to go to Krakoa, and something sort of interferes with that in an exciting way that will be explained in future issues. So, Nicole, what did you think of Children of the Atom? So, I'm a big fan of the X-Men, um, and I'm just as big of a fan of the knockoff X-Men. I like <laughs> yeah. them a lot. They're, they have a really, I feel, like, it's 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 kind of formulaic in the same way that Spider-Man is, but it's also, like, it's a little bit different. Like, it's a, like X-Men can be silly, but it can also be very heavy. And this was one of those comics that I just kind of, like, you know, I, I like, read it, and then I kind of had to, like, sit back for a minute. Like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those series where, like, it's, it's goofy sometimes, and then other times it kind of, like, hits you like a brick wall. Um, but I did really like this one, and I gave it an eight. Oh wow, awesome! And Brandon? Yeah, I um, I thought it was a pretty solid stage setter. I um, this this series has like been kind of weird. It's been delayed for basically a year, uh, and it's just kind of been perpetually out of reach. So the anticipation has definitely been there, and I also read an interview with the writer Vita Ayala, who kind of talked about the influences in this book and one of those was the kind of like rise of mutant culture during grant morrison's new x-men where he had a lot of teenagers who were basically just saying like i i want to be mutants essentially and so i think it's kind of fitting that you would have this book when you know mutants are more popular than ever given all the krakoa stuff that's going on so 
Um, like I said, this is this is a book that uh, it's certainly a very solid stage setter. It's almost it's it's like riding the line between being a book that fits comfortably in the Dawn of X catalog, but at the same time being a book that stands on its own. Um, and I expressed this point earlier. It's almost like sword in that way, where you never really know where it's going to fall. Like they they kind of they're in that same way. But like I said, I, I really enjoyed all the stage setting stuff. I loved the uh, the kind of interactions between each of the new characters, and I felt like it established them in a way that's fairly natural. Like they feel like believable high schoolers, even if some of the drama can be a little formulaic. And then you know, I love seeing basically Cyclops and, and Wolverine, Jean Grey, and all those guys try and figure out, you know, what they're going to do with these people. Um, so it was, it was just a lot of interesting stuff, and I think I'm at least curious to see where the series goes next. But I would probably give this one a 7.5 out of 10, maybe an 8 out of 10 on a good day. Yeah, I had an all right time with it. My only piece is I, I really hope that it goes somewhere that that earns this setup. I found that some of the the traditional teenage themes in the middle of this book went on a little bit longer than I would have originally liked, but you know, I'm I'm getting older and my tastes are changing when it comes to reading about these, you know, teenagers who want to feel different, especially with the the advent of the the twist at the end when you figure out that there's something else to these mutants. Definitely highlights that this could be very interesting but also has some of those recurring themes of of teenagers and sort of growing into themselves mm. so i gave this one a 7.5 as well it's it's good it's a good setup and i hope that it takes off and i hope that it it delivers and doesn't just bog itself down with sort of teen angst because yeah. it's very easy to trap yourself in yeah that. but at the same time you know what would the x-men be without teen angst or angst in general i guess i mean <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because i believe there's a line in the next book that we're covering where it literally says take some angst and slap an x on it and that's how we make our money pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so now we get to deadpool's nerdy 30 Number one, technically, though this is just an anthology issue uh, featuring a bunch of short stories from Deadpool's storied career as the Merc with a Mouth. It's got Immaculate Conception by writer Joe Kelly and artist Gerardo Sandoval, color artist Chris Sotomayor. Baby's First Cable by writer Scotty Young, artist Aaron Conley, and color artist Jean-Francois Boyeux. Best There Is by writer Kelly Thompson, artist Kevin Labranda with Bob Quinn, and color artist Rochelle Rosenberg. Lo, There Shall Come a Hero Maybe by writer Fabian Nikieza, Patch Zercher, and color artist Hava, Tart Hava Tartaglia. Short Story Tale by writer Gail Simone, artist Michael Shelfer, and color artist Jim Carolampidus. No Chill Whatsoever by writer Daniel Way, artist Paco Medina, and color artist Jesus Abertov. Party for One by writer Jerry Duggan and Brian Posehn, artist Scott Koblish and color artist Nick Filardi, and The Tao of Pool by writer Rob Liefeld and Chad Bowers, yeah. with artist Rob Liefeld, color artist Brian Valenza, J. David Ramos, and Federico Blee, making up this eight short story anthology, <laughs> with lettering by VCs Joe Sabino all the way through. 
What follows in here is a collection of eight very short stories. This is a 46-page anthology covering eight stories. So you're looking at like some five-page stories here uh, with stories covering really just like goofy Deadpool-related sketch comedy as well as a couple interesting uh, nods and references. You have... Uh, you have sketches about cable coming from the future to stop Deadpool from existing and other cables coming to stop cable and other cables to stop cable from stopping cable, you know, time travel stuff. You have Deadpool's first meeting with Wolverine. Maybe Uh, you have Deadpool talking about how he's going to design his costume. You've got Deadpool working with agent X, his sort of self clone body double you've got you've got an entire bottle episode of deadpool literally just in a box underneath the water going crazy which are crazy for deadpool standards and a couple more and uh, a lot of them like i said they're they're sketch comedy they focus a lot just on a couple different aspects of deadpool that you might get a kick out of reading here or there nicole what do you think I don't know this felt very much like a it felt like a sketch comedy like um it, it didn't feel like cohesive stories like i mean i love deadpool as much as the next guy but like it it just didn't really do much for me um i gave it a four. Oof. Oh wow and Harsh. and brandon did you say you had gotten to this one well i i didn't get to finish all of it um i had read a couple of the short stories but i had done some research on the book as I want to do. That's just, <laughs> I guess that that's who I am. It, in this podcast, I'm going to be the information guy. That's just how it's going to be, I guess. But, that's awesome. Yeah. So I guess this is like kind of the, the lineup of all stars of Deadpool writers. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not the biggest Deadpool fan. Um, I, you know, the, sometimes it can kind of work, sometimes not, but I like, I can't really think of any instance where I've really tried to finish a run on Deadpool or anything like that. Like, I could take them in small chunks. Um, but uh, for the ones that I read, it seemed to be, you know, kind of fun, one-and-done stories involving Deadpool. Um, some were enjoyable, some not so much. The ones that I did get a chance to read were the ones by Gail Simone, Daniel Way, uh, Jerry Duggan, and Kelly Thompson. Um, and those ones were pretty enjoyable, at least I'd say of those, I probably enjoyed the one from Jerry Duggan the most. Um, and I know he had a pretty extensive run on Deadpool that, uh, most people liked, but, um, I'd say for the ones that I read, you know, nothing particularly stand out, just kind of a, you know, run of the mill anthology and it's sure to please any hardcore Deadpool fans who are super familiar with this uh this list of creators so for me i'd probably give this one a, a six out of ten uh, maybe a 6.5 on a good day nothing to stand out but i think it would probably work more for a deadpool fan than it would for me i had an okay time with this it's it was goofy but nothing really was given any of the time to generate impact so it really was aiming to sell you that deadpool kitsch yeah a lot of one-liners and a lot of uh, and a lot of puns and even making jokes about trying to make puns, which is just a gold mine sometimes. But in, in this, because nothing was really given 
the attention. It doesn't land exceedingly well. So I gave it a five and a half, but I do have a caveat that I think this book could be a seven and a half. Oh, for a very specific Avenue. I give it a five and a half. Cause if you're looking to add something to your library that you're going to be happy to have, I don't think this is really going to be where you want to go, but I give it a seven and a half, not for myself, but if you've got a Deadpool fan in your life, who's got a birthday coming up, <laughs> this is a, a, it's a small little book and it's just like, Hey, I know you like Deadpool. And even if you don't read comics, you can put this in your bathroom and giggle about haha, Deadpool shot himself through the arm or something, you know, (laughs) regular Deadpool stuff. And, and I think it works in that way. I think it's an excellent gift, which kind of fits for its Deadpool's 30th anniversary. It's not really a run. It doesn't require you to know where Deadpool's at. It has nothing to do with his current reign on Staten Island. Yeah, No, it's, it's (laughs) a lot of just one and done self-contained stories that are sure to please any, any hardcore fan. So like I said, I think it'll work for some people. Probably didn't work as much for me just because I don't have that emotional connection. But I like that they brought a, a lot a lot of the uh, the old creators back. That's great. Like I said, it, it's great to see Joe Kelly on Nonstop Spider-Man, and I guess he wrote Deadpool at some point too. So it's cool to see him back here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so now, Brandon, if you want to take us away with Immortal Hulk number 44. I would love to. So, Immortal Hulk 44 features the uh, currently depowered version of the Hulk basically facing off against the UFOs. We start with some opening narration from uh, Henry Gierich, who, for those who are familiar with Marvel lore, is basically the standard bureaucrat figure throughout Marvel. Every time he shows up, it's usually some connection to the government and he has to step in and take force in some way. So it's always fun to see him here. But uh, at present, he is serving as the commander of Alpha Flight and he is overseeing uh, the UFOs who are basically trying to take down the Hulk. Um, And that's kind of the majority of the issue, really just showing the UFOs their specific power set and how they're using it to take down a depowered Hulk. Uh, intercut with that is the uh, second narrative that's kind of building upon the last issue where uh, the doctor who is stuck in the body of uh, Walter Lankowski, also known as basically the big beast creature from Alpha Flight. Oh, Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Sorry. I I, like totally spaced on that for some reason. I have no idea why. But anyway... Uh, basically, they're trying to get back to Shadow Base because Shadow Base had been destroyed by uh, the first enemy in an earlier issue. And they're basically trying to get him back so they can get the Doctor back into his body. So this issue is kind of just tying up some some loose ends uh, while also setting up some new mysteries. Because as we move towards the end and the UFOs are really getting an upper hand on the depowered Hulk... One of the UFOs is basically able to uh, reverse the gamma within Hulk and use that to send him back into his Joe Fixit persona and then, from that point, kill him. And at the end of the issue, we reveal that both Joe Fixit and the uh, depowered Hulk persona are now in the below place, uh, where they see basically this giant version of the leader just staggering over them and that's how we end 
Yeah, I would say overall this issue uh, does a really great job of highlighting the best parts of Immortal Hulk, which is the body horror, which is a lot of the uh, re recurring elements. So you kind of see a back and forth between the UFOs that mirrors some of the stuff that's set up on the, the beginning of the issue and pays off at the end of the issue. It does a really great job of that. For me, it just it just kind of continues the trend of how much I love Immortal Hulk and doesn't really change in that. And uh, I'm definitely interested to see what's going to happen with uh, Joe Fix-It and Hulk now that they are in the below place. So this one I gave easily an 8.5 out of 10. I just really enjoy the series. I love this issue. I love seeing Al Ewing's depiction of the UFOs. And of course, it goes without saying that Joe Bennett's art is absolutely amazing in bringing a horror edge to this series. So I absolutely love it. Awesome. And Nicole? So <laughs> I did not go into this knowing that it was like a, I don't know, it was going to be like that kind of gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I really liked the art style, actually. Like that was probably the part of it that I liked the most. And that's probably why I actually finished it, because I I like had to like put my hand over some of these yeah. like, panels. Um, like gore is, is just personally not something I'm super into. But like one trope that I kind of just like my brain can't really handle is like the body horror like body snatching almost like i can't like something about it just really freaks me out but um i did really like it i gave it a seven awesome yeah for this one i gave it a, a 7.5 i i enjoyed it the ufos were neat and i really liked sort of you know like he said that anti-gamma piece mm. that reversing it and bringing out joe fix it i was i was here for the body horror isn't really my greatest cup of tea either but you know, I see, I see it, and I can see why it works so well with something like the Hulk. Oh yeah, especially in an issue focused on the Hulk and the leader and things like that. You know, where it's it really is just sort of like the grotesque gigantification that happens from gamma radiation and things like that. Yeah, that there is a place for them to explore that, and I'm glad that they're doing it. Though, I'm also not the biggest fan of yeah. it that said my only complaint really with this issue and maybe it was just because i haven't spent a lot of time with the immortal hulk series is the b plot being sort of the the leader and rick jones sharing a body coming apart piece as well as the ufos beating up the hulk and the hulk being sort of this disfigured version of himself and then the rick jones leader being a disfigured version of himself I did lose exactly which body horror I was looking yeah. at sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I had to figure out by like supporting dialogue and read a couple panels again. So I, I did just get lost a little bit. Mm. So that's what uh, kept this one at a 7.5 for me was that it just, the art flew off the page, but what was happening didn't necessarily. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's weird. I'm not a big body horror guy or even a horror guy at all. And yet, you know, this past year I've been reading, like more horror comics than at any other point in my life. Like most of most of the independent comics I read are either horror based. I suddenly subscribe to a, a horror comic anthology. I'm reading this, and Marvel put out like a, a 
like a Cronenberg horror version of Fantastic Four a couple months ago. I don't know <laughs> like what it is about. Maybe it's just how horrible this, you know, the last year was. But like something about horror lately and comics has just been really pulling me in. So I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just an evolution in the stage of my life. <laughs> All right, Immortal Hulk forty four like Brandon said, was brought to us by writer Al Ewing, artist Joe Bennett on pencils, Ryu Jose and Bellardino Bravo on inks, Paul Mounts as the color artist, and lettering by VCs Corey Pettit. And so now we go to Strange Academy number nine by writer Scotty Young, artist Humberto Ramos, color artist Edgar Delgado, and lettering by VCs Clayton Cowles. In this issue, we find... A, the continuation of the Strange Academy series, which is, you know, focusing on these young sort of, I'll call them Marvel hero adjacent characters, characters who, you know, you can see the the trends that link them to the bigger scenes in Marvel. We've got Doyle Dormammu and, you know, the daughter of a frost giant. We've got a couple Asgardian children and a fairy from Otherworld. Like, so there, there's a lot of different characters here and this one focuses a bit more on i have the the one kid's name here calvin who sort of has been sort of been led to us as like the normal american kid in most of the issues he he likes snacks and video games and tv and where all of these other classmates are from fantastical places we find out that calvin is from a, a series of less than stellar foster homes. And we, we get a couple shots of him and his magic leather jacket in a foster home. And it doesn't, it doesn't go well for the people involved there. And we see that he, he doesn't come from a, a place of happiness and it, and it cuts to, you know, him having these, these dreams or nightmares, if you will, with him then at school in time for parents day, which leads to sort of a split plot where we have the parents day stuff where all the parents of a lot of these characters show up though. We have Loki show up for the, the Asgardian twins as you know, their fun uncle to, to spend the day with them. Uh, we get to see the normal human parents of Emily. She, they show up and they're just baffled by all the crazy stuff that's going on in, at this Academy. And then they go off and they play games. They, they have to retrieve a statue from, uh, a magic place as with teams of, with their parents, they have to run through a maze of destruction and death. Uh, but then we get sort of this bonding moment between Calvin, who we have learned doesn't have parents and Doyle Dormammu, the son of the dread Dormammu, who obviously is not getting a free pass up to earth to take part in parents day. <laughs> and so they end up on sort of a, a list of chores that backfire and they get in each other's grill. They sort of talk a lot about sort of their respective backgrounds and it culminates with both a little bit of drama between them. And then like, and then sort of that usual strange Academy vibe that we're getting of them, you know, of these kids coming together of them, you know, you just really can't beat the bonds you make in high school type of deal. And then it ends with, uh, a few more links to that more parents day goings on some more dramatic events are going to be happening to these kids and potentially even a field trip. It looks like. So what did you think, Nicole? I like this one a lot. Like it was kind of a little bit tropey and a little bit formulaic, but I really enjoyed all of it. And I think that the story has a really nice heart 
And so, yeah, I gave it a six. Awesome. And Brandon? Yeah, I um, I hadn't been reading Strange Academy up until this point, so I, I had to catch up quite a bit. But I I think um, I think the series has definitely kind of grown on me because you know I, uh, I I didn't really have any interest in it when it started, but kind of being able to read through the past eight issues has definitely let the characters grow on me a lot. So kind of learning more about their backstories and seeing their parents, that was also a lot of fun. And then, you know, the tease at the end with the field trip is definitely something to look forward to. So I think I've got a lot more stock in this series. And then um, I'm not the biggest Humberto Ramos fan, just in terms of his art. Sometimes I can find it very hit or miss, uh, but I think that there were a lot more hits in this issue. Uh, so I definitely enjoyed that aspect uh, more than I anticipated. So I would probably give this one a 6.5, maybe a 7 out of 10 on a good day. Awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I've been a fan of Strange Academy since it started up. Uh, it did take a break there in, in the beginning with with uh, with COVID and all. But I've I've grown to like it, and I'm excited to see where it goes. I like sort of this different aspect of both of Dr. Strange and sort of these characters as they're, they're going through it because we're getting a chance to see characters like, like magic, Dr. Voodoo and Dr. Strange in a slightly different way. And, and that's growing on me a lot. And I can't wait to see like it tell, you know, the final pieces of its big, bigger story. So I, with that, I'm looking forward to it. And I hope this one continues for a little while. Mm -hmm. That said, I got just the weirdest kick and I don't know why in this issue, there's a panel with Scarlet, Witch as you know, Mrs. Maximoff, the teacher, and she's wearing her, her red sort of leotard outfit and her crown. And then she's got a pink blouse on underneath her leotard. So it's just coming out of her. Her costume that she's just a regular teacher wearing a Scarlet Witch yeah. costume kind of over top of her clothes. And it was just, it cracked me up. It's the silliest panel and it's the type of stuff that we're seeing in this. And, you know, there was an earlier issue of Strange Academy where we saw a couple of the teachers like mailboxes in their email inboxes, which had a couple hidden jokes from the kids being like, hey, I'm sorry this is late, but it's totally legit my, my email was down you know just the regular stuff and it, it's fun yeah. and and i like it and i, I gave this issue a 7.5 i i liked the backstories but it didn't go anywhere and i feel like when strange academy wants to tell something bigger and more dramatic i think it has the gravity to do it but i also understand that it wants to spend its time on these different characters and i do like sort of this sort of visibly shouldn't be a good guy Doyle Dormammu character like he's the son of Dormammu he looks like Dormammu he but then they they put him in these sweater vests and he's he's doing okay with his classmates and his friends and it's like I kind of hope they do something with him that 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 really like earns this yeah, yeah. and he isn't just like hey remember that time Dormammu had a kid in a prep school <laughs> <laughs> so with that we will move on to Eternals number three brought to us by writer Kieran Gillen, artist Isad Ribic, color artist Matthew Wilson, and lettering by Clayton Cowles. Take it away on Eternals number three, Brandon. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, 
This issue, we get to meet Thena, uh, and as she is described, she is the book and the blade. You would likely like her, she would likely like you, basically showing us that Thena is someone who is very likable, uh, which is good because we reveal that she, basically after having left the Eternal Families, decided to set up camp with their mortal enemies, the Deviants, in Lymeria. Uh, and so basically this issue kind of revolves around the Eternals reconciling with Thena after having left, after having been resurrected, because as we know, the Eternals died uh, at an earlier point during, I believe, Jason Aaron's Avengers. And as of now, they're investigating the big mystery, which is who killed Zoras. Uh, and Zoras is kind of the head Eternal. Um, and so... They're kind of casting doubt on Thena, particularly because of her past with Deviants. She's been known to take lovers in the past. She kind of gives them more sympathy. Um, and kind of when she's being questioned about it uh, by the other Eternals, she's, you know, revealing that she had had a previous argument with her father where she had given a threat. But obviously she's saying, well, you know, I, I didn't have any hand in this. It was a threat, but I didn't genuinely mean it. Uh, meanwhile, in uh, New York City, at the Robeson residence, uh, we shift over to Icarus, who is still uh, watching over the house of Toby Robeson, uh, who he had been shown a vision of uh, in the last issue, basically saying that you know something would happen to him. And so Icarus kind of takes it upon himself to make sure that he's protecting the Robeson family at all times. Um, and so we get to see a lot of really fun interaction between Icarus and the Robeson family, uh, especially when he's just kind of telling them, you know, what an Eternal actually is. And we get this beautiful panel where it's just them staring shocked at Icarus while he's <laughs> drinking coffee. Uh, and then he's basically just like, this is good coffee. Um, so I loved that. Um, and then we flash back to Lemuria where... Uh, Cersei is kind of continuously asking Athena questions about, you know, why she may have a motive to have killed Zeras, and then we go into a flashback a hundred thousand years ago to the last time that Athena had kind of taken a, a deviant lover and how the deviant had basically used her uh, as a way to upgrade uh, himself and his people. So, uh, and this is one thing that I particularly love about this issue, but this series as well, is it's really taking its time to not only flesh out the Eternals as they are now, uh, but as they were then, kind of giving them this great storied past, um, especially, you know, for people who were totally unfamiliar with the Eternals like I am. Um, so we flash back to Lemuria where they're basically, you know, Cersei's still kind of giving Athena crap about, you know, how she feels she doesn't trust him and then the machine basically relays a message from Druig uh, and Druig reveals that he had returned to Polaria uh, to receive orders from their ruler who's known as the Supreme Falcon and we reveal that that entire basically colony has been slaughtered and given that you know Druig is the only one at the scene and given that Druig is now basically the de facto ruler of Polaria, uh, it gives the Eternals motive to believe that Druig may possibly be a suspect 
in the murder of Zeress. And that's how our issue ends. So, you know, I, I really can't praise this series enough. I'm just loving Kieran Gillen's... I don't know that I'd call it a reinvention of the Eternals, but definitely a, a greater exploration of the Eternals. And uh, it certainly pairs very well with the artwork by Saad Ribic, who um, really just brings to life a, a kind of epic scope uh, especially in his landscapes, even if a lot of the scenes are just kind of dialogue back and forth between the characters. I mean, they're just some really standout moments where, you know, they're standing in the cavern um, and they're facing Athena's deviant ruler or even on the third page where, I don't know if it's the third page, but the page basically where, you know, Athena is looking up at Lemuria and you get a, a beautiful splash page of Lemuria. It's just really remarkable to look at. Um, so, like I said, uh, this approach and exploration of the Eternals, their, you know, storied history and this kind of murder mystery all tying together, while it can definitely be overwhelming, um, it's it's just really fascinating to me, especially as someone who doesn't really know a lot about the actual stories of the Eternals, knows more about the publication history of the Eternals, but uh, it's still fascinating nonetheless. So I gave this one a 9 out of 10. I, I absolutely loved it. All right. And Nicole? So I'm also going into this without knowing a super, like, deep lore about the Eternals. I'm not very familiar with them, um, but I am enjoying the series. I like that it gives you a good feeling of how these characters are, and it helps explain to newer people like myself kind of the atmosphere in which the Eternals occurs, especially when it, like, shows you, it, it like, jumps back almost. I also think that it was very entertaining and kind of cute, and I liked it a lot. I also really liked the art style. I gave this one an eight. Thanks, Nicole. I also gave this one an eight. I So first off, the art. Holy smokes. This is a beautiful series. Oh, yeah. Every time they get and, a sound rubbish for anything, it's like, you know, it's going to be good. Mm -hmm. Especially, I really liked the part with Icarus in the Robeson residence, mm -hmm. the contrast of him. He still looks like he's, he, he's in the same style, of course, and he's so, he looks like them, but he's also so distinctly out of place oh, yeah. in every panel next to these humans, just in sort of the way that they stand and the way that they're shaped. Just, you can tell that he's, he's an eternal. Yeah. yeah. And it's it, it's gorgeous to look at as someone who also isn't a big like person who's super familiar with the Eternals. This w comic worked for me in terms of understanding what it was about and things like that. But I am also not aware of a lot of the moments that led into this. I have not. I don't have a history with Cersei or Thena or Icarus. I am definitely excited to see more. I gave it an eight out of ten because. I, I really just want to look at more pages of this comic yeah. really sort of regardless of what the panels look like yeah. or what the panels say. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say definitely if you're looking for, if you're enjoying this book so far um, and you're looking for an Eternals book that's similar to this, the Neil Gaiman uh, Eternals run, which is it's seven issues. So it's definitely easy to get through uh, is, is a big influence on this one. Um, especially cause I think it talks about, the first issue where it talks about like something that Sprite did. And I'm pretty sure that's tied to that run in particular. I haven't, I haven't read it in a while, so I'd have to refresh my memory, but yeah, I, I would just say if you're looking for 
interesting takes on the Eternals outside of Jack Kirby. Uh, you can't go wrong with Neil Gaiman. Awesome. And I definitely want to shout out that this comic, the the piece with, it, it does these dark pages with names on them in a, a couple different places to really uh, just sort of add effect to this comic. And I will say, oh, I yeah. loved the, the, the one. The infographics. Yeah, the one page where it just says Lemuria, right after that huge splash page mm-hmm. like you're talking about. It says initial population 100, current population and then it cuts to the next page and it says page seven out of 10,000. And it's just a wall of names, yeah. just a huge unyielding like block of names. And it's aesthetically striking and it sends the exact drama that you wanted to see. Like, you know, how did this population, how big did this population get? Yeah. yeah they, uh, they sold it. And then also just being able to read a bunch of deviant names, uh-huh kind of made me laugh yeah one of the ones i remember reading was like Kerrig max grass scissor yeah. and grass scissor has i think seven s's in it <laughs> yeah if uh if anyone follows kieran gillen's news newsletter which I, I definitely would recommend it's very entertaining uh kieran basically talked about how he used a, a coding script to basically just I guess write an algorithm that churned out a bunch of different eternal names. And I, he, he talked about like trying to make it go public. I don't know if they can yet just cause like there might be some legal stuff whether they can or not, but if they make that accessible, I'd love to do it. Cause you could just generate like endless deviant names and I would have a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really cool. So next on our list, we've got taskmaster number four from writer Jed McKay with artist Alessandro Vitti, color artist Guru FX, and lettering by Joe Caramagna. Nicole, how about you give us a summary on Taskmaster number four? All right, so we open up with our our main man, Tony, um, jumping out of an airplane, and he really sets the scene super well. Uh, He goes right into the middle of a Wakandan army, (laughs) and... In just classic, you know, himself is like, yep, I got a plan. He's, you know, he's telling puns. He's having fun with it, but he's getting captured by the Wakandan military. And they, you know, they bring him into a room. There's this really nice fight scene um, that looks really well choreographed. And then, you know, he's brought to a, a, a secret room with Nick Fury. And then you see... Black Widow kind of finding him. Um, It's unclear where she is, but like she's around. So this issue was in a different, it's not the first issue of this story, but it's the first one that I was able to to read. So from what I understand, Tony is essentially being framed for a murder that he didn't do, which is, you know, not really like him. (laughs) (laughs) And... Black Widow believes that he did it and she's chasing him. She eventually finds him in Wakanda. Presumably. It's it's not official yet, but like it's it's heavily implied at the end of this comic. It was a fun read. I liked the fighting scene a lot. And I thought that the imagery at the beginning set the scene very well um, for what was about to happen. It felt like a heist. It felt very natural for <laughs> Taskmaster, uh, especially. And it really 
drives home kind of like this almost seriousness that you feel when you know that there's going to be Wakanda military involved. But I did like this one a lot. I gave it a seven. Awesome. And Brandon? Yeah, this, uh, this series has been kind of kind of fun, kind of an interesting take on uh, Taskmaster. And like Nikki said, I have been um, interested in the whole plot angle with Tony and uh, just kind of following it along. So... I don't really have a ton of thoughts for this one. I, I think I was more interested in the fight sequence in this particular issue um, than it was in anything else. So, you know, I got to give the credit to the artist, uh, Alessandro Viti. I feel like he's just did a great job illustrating the action here. And so I gave this one a 6.5 out of 10. I think the art definitely helped carry it, for me at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. It... This Taskmaster series, I, I do really like it. I, I like seeing more of Taskmaster, and I like seeing him sort of through these different lenses, and this one is definitely giving us yeah. a, a shot at that. But this series has definitely had a strong focus on sort of these striking, visceral fight choreography that we've seen with him, and, and that's something that you need with Taskmaster. Like, that's literally his superpower is really precise movements yeah yeah and i think they, like i said i think they definitely chose the right artist for this book because illustrating that action definitely does a good job absolutely and yeah the the stage was set really good and then we did spend most of this issue just sort of going from a wakandan military tussle to a tussle between him and okoye which i understood the sort of the pseudo reason that they gave in the plot. But if I'm going to be, if I'm going to put like my, my glasses on and, and talk about this issue, it kind of also just felt like a, all right, let's take this issue to do a who would win taskmaster versus a Koye. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think that it, you know, needing Okoye's movements memorized in taskmaster works as a plot element, I suppose. But it really also just writes like an excuse to have Taskmaster fight this other really talented non-meta-human fighter. Yeah. And, you know, because those are the, the things people love. Like, you know, forums are rife with, could Taskmaster beat so-and-so? This person doesn't have the, the strength to break his bones in a single hit. Could he, could he beat them? Could he beat them? And, and I do love Taskmaster talking about movements and fighting style when he's well-written. It's, it's really cool to have him break that stuff down mm. earlier in this series. We get the panel of him talking about the moves he's stolen from people. And, and I love that one panel where he's, he's naming his moves, but he doesn't know what other characters call their moves. Yeah. So it's just the sidekick that iron fist uses and that throw captain America used to toss me out a window. And so I got a kick out of that. And so in this, like we're getting some of that. And I feel like Taskmaster's charm really comes in exploring sort of the, the hand to hand of these other characters. There's that famous Moon Knight versus Taskmaster fight that a lot of people oh, love. Yeah. And uh, Taskmaster versus Captain America in, oh, what was it? I think issue four of the most recent volume of Captain America. That was beautifully illustrated by Lanil Yu, and that was just a great... Ex I mean, he lost, but still a great example of his ability to adapt. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, show his versatility. Yeah, and I don't know. It, 
the the one quote that always stays with me from that Moon Knight fight is talking about Moon Knight's fighting style as, you know, if I could go my whole life without having someone's movements in my head, it would be yours. You never found a punch you didn't want to take to the face. (laughs) And so it's got some of that Taskmaster charm. The series hasn't knocked it out of the park for me. If I'm not mistaken, this is the series that introduced, um, man, I wish I could remember his name offhand. The sort of the Korean super soldier. Oh yeah. I can't, I can't think of the name. Yeah. I I wish I had that written down, but I I hope, I hope we see some more in that vein just because I'm, I'm excited to see like when we have this character who is a Merc, who's going global and we get a chance to shine a light on some new characters Mm -hmm. and get some diverse voices out there. I think that works really well. And, you know, he went to Wakanda, he went to Korea in, in like four issues, but in this issue, I don't feel like we explored as much. Yeah. So yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. So I gave it a, a seven out of 10. The fights are nice. It's good. The writing is decent enough. Taskmaster is entertaining. He's, he's a smart ass. He always has been. And if you want to watch who would win Taskmaster versus Okoye, this is your issue. <laughs> it's time to settle some, time to settle some bets. Yeah. <laughs> Leaving Taskmaster number four, we're going on to Daredevil number 28 by writer Chip Zdarsky, artist Mark Cicchetto, color by Marsha Meniz, and letters by Clayton Cowles and Brandon. Let's uh, let's hear about Daredevil 28. Absolutely. Uh, this is continuing the story of uh, Daredevil in prison. And... Um, even though that that has that is something that's been explored before, um, I think one of this thing, I think one of the things that this issue highlights is how different Matt Murdock being in prison as Daredevil versus you know Matt Murdock being in prison as Matt Murdock because him you know being in prison as Daredevil obviously affords you know certain privileges that the regular inmate doesn't really have, um, and so I think a lot of the things that just really grabbed me about this issue was seeing Daredevil interact um, with the different inmates, particularly, I believe the inmate's name is Nick, who kind of has a stutter and is kind of looking for protection. And, you know, Matt is able to basically save him from a shower brawl, um, only for the issue to reveal that, unfortunately, Nick takes his life towards the end. And we kind of see Matt building his relationship with the prison doctor as well, who's kind of talking to him about, you know, why are you here? What is the purpose of you being in prison? Because obviously it's not going to be the same situation uh, as any other prisoner. Obviously being a masked hero affords you certain privileges and things like that. Um, And then we do get brief uh, flashback scenes to Kingpin and to Elektra, kind of tying up some of the plot threads that were set well not really tying up but kind of continuing the plot threads that were set up in uh, king and black where electra has taken in uh, a young girl whose mother was killed during the king and black invasion and then uh, kingpin is kind of just checking in on mary after she was possessed by one of the symbiotes in uh, king and black so um while this issue does juggle three plots, I think it does it fairly well and in a way that feels particularly heartfelt, especially the story with Matt being in prison. And I just really love this angle that Zdarsky is exploring of, you know, Matt being in prison as Daredevil and kind of the complications that 
he has and feels, you know, what kind of penance he's trying to put himself under, but also kind of highlighting, you know, the hypocrisy of you're kind of putting yourself in this position, but it's not the same as everyone else. Um, you know, obviously you being in prison as a superhero is going to be different. Um, and it's, it's kind of hypocritical of you to talk about looking for absolution when, you know, your very presence in prison just isn't going to be equal. So um, I just really love what this series is exploring. Um, and I gave this issue a 9 out of 10, uh, definitely a 9.5 on a good day. Um, I love Zdarsky's Daredevil. It's just continuously great, continuously knocks it out of the park. And I think it goes without saying that the art by Marco Cicchetto is just absolutely gorgeous on every page. Awesome. Thanks for that, Brandon. Uh, Nicole, what did you think about this? Um, so I'm not super familiar with Daredevil either, but I really liked this. Um, I found it very entertaining. I thought it was very well paced and I really adored the art style. I gave this one an eight. Awesome. Yeah. I I really liked this. I I haven't caught all the way up with uh, Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil. I read a few of the issues that came before this to make sure I was on the right track, but I, w- I want to start over at number oh, one. Oh, yeah. You got it. Uh, and actually give it the, the time it deserves, because it is so yeah, good. Yeah. It's a slow build, I'll say. Because um, I know when I went into this series way back in February 2019, which is only two years ago, but it feels like so long ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a slow bill, kind of, you know, I would say your run-of-the-mill Daredevil at first. There are some interesting themes that it explores, but for me, I think it really starts to pick up in the second arc um, and, and just kind of, you know, goes off from there like it's really it really just explores what it means to be daredevil in such an interesting way that you know i uh i absolutely adore Hmm. i really do and daredevil has always been such an interesting character for oh, that yeah. like you talked about his sort of unique situation and how he interacts with absolution and that has always been sort of a founding piece in in daredevil is this inability to say no to what he believes is the solution, mm-hmm. but also this inability to to give him give himself absolution. Oh yeah. So many heroes sleep at night with what they do, not being all that different from Daredevil. But he he's a he's always been a Catholic boy, and and he carries that Catholic guilt. Yeah, all the way through. And, and it's so well written here with Zadarsky, and I really like it. And you did say it juggles the three really well, but I also like, you know, in each of these issues, I feel like they decide, all right, we're going to, we're going to talk a bit about, you know, the Kingpin. We're going to talk a bit about Electra and we're going to talk a bit about Daredevil, but each one, they sort of say like, all right, but this is Daredevil's turn. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to, we're going to spend a, a few more pages with Matt. This is where the the meat's going to be. And then we're going to just remind you that, hey, Electra's doing something. Kingpin's doing something. And then we're going to tease next issue, you know, some, some, what looks like some more Electra uh, content. Oh, yeah. But I do love the, the approach of Electra as Daredevil. Because my guess is it's, it's going to lead to, you know, her kind of softening up a little bit and discovering what it means to be a symbol in Hell's Kitchen. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And so I don't know if I said my rating yet, but I, I gave this one a nine out of 10 as well. I, 
I'm a big fan of what Zadarsky's doing with uh, with Mr. Murdoch, mm-hmm. and I, I want to see more. And with that, we we come to our our final issue of the week, the final piece of the Wolverine Black, White, and Blood anthology series, featuring three short stories, The Art of Loss by writer Kelly Thompson, artist Carrie Randolph, with Reave What You Sew by writer Ed Brisson, and artist Leonard Kirk with Andre Mosa on the reds as a colorist, and Sticks and Stones by Stephen S. DeKnight, with artists by Paulo Sequeira, inks by Oren Jr., and Andre Mosa on the Reds again. Nikki, how about you give us a summary with, uh, with what we can expect from Black, White, and Blood number four? Of course. Um, so it starts off with The Art of Loss, um, which is about essentially Mystique coming to terms with Rogue having, you know, her own life. Um, and it's about you know, the trials that Mystique has had to go through to protect Rogue for her whole life. Um, and it's also about Wolverine getting left at the altar by Mariko. The next one on the list is Reave What You Sew, which is um, not quite as deep as the last one somehow, um, but way more brutal. Um, in this one, Wolverine has a fight scene with some sharks <laughs> um, after being on a cruise ship and then some big bads come in from what I understood they were just like these scuba divers that hate mutants um, I don't <laughs> really know the lore of them but they got on the cruise ship and they fought and then Wolverine had to fight some sharks so that was pretty cool mm. And then the last one is Sticks and Stones, sorry. Uh, The last one is Sticks and Stones, where Wolverine is catapulted into the past um, with a bunch of dinosaurs. (laughs) And he just immediately starts fighting like these huge giant dinosaurs and there's a lot of body gore. And then there are two um, characters now that talk. Um, one of them is uh, Garrick the Petrified Man, mm-hmm. and the other one is a pterodactyl um, whose name I didn't catch. Sauron. Yeah, Sauron. Sauron. Old oh. X-Men foe. Not to be confused with the Dark Lord of the Rings, yeah. but spelled the same. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, so Wolverine basically looks like Herak and just immediately decapitates him. Mm-hmm. And then, as kind of almost a twist, he ends up, like, going toe-to-toe with Sauron instead. Um, And that's where we're left off. Um, So I'm a big fan of the X-Men series, and I'm clearly a big fan of Wolverine because of that. But (laughs) um, I think everyone kind of is. I do enjoy seeing kind of, you know, other things he does. That are that are like super dramatic, but it's Wolverine, so he's like monotone. It's kind of hilarious. Like he's just kind of having fun, like killing all these people and all these monsters. And mm. it's it's almost silly at like a very like if you if you take a big step back, it's it's very silly. Um, and I like it that a lot. I also really like this art style. I gave this a nine. 
Awesome. And Brandon? Yeah, this, this series has been kind of great for me, and I'll, I'll be sad to see it go. Um, just because, I mean, you know, I, I would say that I am a fan of Wolverine, but I don't know how much I like him in large quantities. Like, I, I'm someone that if, if I had to read like 50 issues of Wolverine, it would probably be a bit hard for me to get through. But this is like, this is perfect. It was, you know, four monthly issues and each one is a collection of three 10 page one and done stories, which is perfect. And you could just kind of tell a really awesome Wolverine story and it's in black and and red and white which just looks awesome objectively I think anyway um so yeah I think for me the standout story of this issue is definitely the Kelly Thompson one uh, art wise I really loved Kari Randolph's pencils and how he was kind of able to incorporate red into his issue especially sometimes with the background like I thought that was an interesting choice because uh, it will sometimes shift from being red into gray. Um, but yeah, no, I think it has just been a really interesting experiment with Wolverine. I can't say that there was really any issue that had bad stories, um, but you know, this one in particular, well, I wouldn't say it was my favorite of the anthology series so far. It definitely had some, some really solid stories. So I gave this one an 8 out of 10. Awesome. Thanks. I I liked this book. I really did. I hadn't paid much attention to the Black, White, and Blood before this, but having read through a handful of them now, I, I, definitely, I, I definitely enjoyed mm. this. And I gave this one an 8 out of 10. But I think for me that is that eight to 10 is carried by the yeah. art yeah, for sure. and specifically by the issue or the short story in this one art of loss, yeah. the, the, the drama between mystique dealing with her grief and Wolverine dealing with his grief. And it really just coming out in these self-destructive tendencies. It worked for me. Oh yeah. For sure. And, and I, I liked the way they spoke. They were well-written. They like Kelly Thompson just nailed the feel that I wanted from, from that story. And then at the end where, you know, they're storm and Wolverine are looking for a bar. There's this one panel where the sky is drawn with this striking red that sort of sends to me this sort of message of a sunrise that they're looking for a bar at what I could only describe as probably five in the morning. Like it, it was such a beautiful shot yeah. at, at the end of a, a weirdly heartwarming story involving mystique and Wolverine, just wanting to kill each <laughs> other for six of its pages. But I, I was there for it. And art of loss really worked for me. Oh, yeah. Reeve What You Sow was a half-decent story. Wolverine fights some sharks and fights some mutant haters, which was good fun. And it was him really talking about blood for blood and him sort of doing things the way he does whenever the X-Men leave him alone, mm. which is sort of the, the love-it-hate-it part of his character, depending on who you mm. are. You know, and, and I'm okay with it. I Like, you don't have a person whose superpower is flesh-rending claws without, you know hurting people. Yeah, some kind of violence. <laughs> yeah. And then the the sticks and stones to close it out was was bittersweet cuz while I enjoyed it cuz it was a bit comical. But Sauron is he's really just he's a he's a cartoon character. 
he he's hard to take seriously as a villain. Yeah. And the the fight with the petrified man ending in like one second <laughs> was so funny. So as much as I enjoyed it for like a it gave me a chuckle. You know, I was sort of hope I think if they had switched the order and this ended on something like Art of Loss, sort of yeah, that would have left you with a more satisfied feeling. I would have been left with a more satisfied feeling and it would have left on sort of that haunting, you know, one of the things that I feel to me is a cornerstone of Wolverine is this, I'm never going to die. I'm never going to age and I'm never going to feel better about all of these emotional scars that I'm building up. Every bad thing that happens to me, I get to carry for longer than everyone else does. And so having that just sort of, melancholy at the end would have worked so much better than yeah. I yeah. think that the panel of, Oh, Wolverine and the, in the pterodactyl <laughs> yeah. man are going to fight. <laughs> yeah. So I gave it an eight out of 10. I liked it. I liked the series. I'm looking forward to what they do with black, white, and blood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're due for a carnage black, white, and blood next. <laughs> I believe that is either next month or the month yep. after. And which... following that, a, a Deadpool black white and blood and and i don't know why but i'm i'm really looking forward to that one yeah (laughs) all right and that brings us to the end of our list for the evening uh i feel like we had a a pretty good lineup this week nothing that i really just panned and i don't think anything that we're gonna get a bunch of hate in the comments for. (laughs) (laughs) uh so now everyone's favorite part the part where we pick our, our favorite three from the issue and our best moment so we'll we'll start with nicole what were your top three issues and what was your best moment out of uh, out of all these issues so my top three issues were um wolverine black white and blood uh eternals and strange academy uh my moment from this one was in nonstop spider-man where he says big brain play <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i like that too that that panel yeah. <laughs> it's so e- even funny. though yeah even though it's it's, it's a meme yeah. and you can tell it's a meme and it's winking right at the camera it's a really dynamic looking panel oh, yeah. and i i really enjoyed that one yeah. too. i want that as a poster <laughs> that would be nice that's awesome uh brandon how about you uh Coming in at number three, I had um, Immortal Hulk, super solid issue, moves for, moves it forward. And as always, I love the the body horror aesthetic of Immortal Hulk, and I'm super interested to see what's going on in the below place in the next issue. Uh, for number two, I had Eternals. Um, like I said, absolutely love the art. Absolutely. Love the story so far, or at least this exploration of the Eternals, and I'm definitely interested to see where that one's going uh, and what kind of plans Kieran Gillen has uh, for the Eternals. And then at number one, I have Daredevil. Uh, it's just one of my absolute favorite series at the moment, um, and it seems like Chip Zdarsky hands out a knockout with each issue, um, which leads into my moment of the week, which is um, the moment where the doctor basically informs daredevil that uh nick had committed suicide and it's just kind of this moment where you know daredevil has his hand pressed against the wall and his head pressed against the wall and you can kind of see like the shadow of his mask and 
uh, it's, it's just a really beautiful panel. Um, and it's definitely my moment of the week. Awesome. Yeah, my top three goes to uh, Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, The Eternals, and then topping it out with Daredevil at the first place. It was just, it was a really good, it was a good issue for Daredevil. Mm -hmm. You already touched on all the reasons why. We touched on what I liked about Wolverine and really just the art in Black, White, and Blood has been worth the read almost in and of itself. And and I would would encourage people to check out those other issues because... The art there is just absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then Eternals, it was, it's very different. It's very unique. And it, this issue doesn't feel like a Marvel comic. There's, there's mm-hmm. really nothing that I could describe as an action sequence in this entire mm-hmm. book, but it is eye candy oh, yeah. and it is engaging meeting for me. What is not the first time, but my first like in-depth time, Cersei and Thena mm-hmm. and Icarus in this way. It's really good, and it's cool to see you know Icarus interacting with with these normal humans and Icarus. You know the coffee's good. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's like so it, it it's so alien and interesting, and it captures exactly how I kind of felt about the Eternals before, and that I knew they were different and I couldn't place mm-hmm. why, but then when you look at them, it's just like right because they're this. Yeah. It's. <laughs> And for my favorite moment of the week, uh, I've got to give it to, I think, the end of Immortal Hulk mm. with the the shot in the below place where you see that body horror leader monster looking like something out of, yeah. like, art of, like, bafflement. Oh, yeah. Like, crazy, demonic, weird pictures. And, and Joe fix it being like, yeah, I'm going to spit in his yeah. face. I don't really have anything else. <laughs> Like it, it was a good moment, and it made me, you know, excited to to spend some time in Immortal Hulk because it's yeah, for sure. It, it, it's got weird stakes, and that that panel really sells it. That even though the stakes are, are different, we've we've got a Hulk who's I think died multiple times in this run. Oh yeah, making us no stranger mm. to it. <laughs> and we're still, and I'm still yep. engaged. I'm I'm here for it. And now. We've picked our top three, but it's time to roll out the biggest thinker. Oh, that's nasty. All right, Nicole, what was your uh, what was your worst one this week? Thor and Loki, Double Trouble. And Brandon? Yeah, I'd probably have to go with Thor, uh, Loki, Double Trouble. Just uh, not, not a bad book by any means, but didn't really do it for me. I don't know. Like I said, I, don't, I just don't think I'm the right age demographic for this. Mm-hmm. I have Deadpool's Nerdy 30 technically as my lowest score on my scorecard here. However, it being an anthology book and not all of it being unreadable and it having a different place in the market. But then again, so does Thor and Loki. So it, it's hard for me to pick a true lowest one here because I like out of the ones that are actual comics in a series here, yeah. Thor and Loki is my lowest scoring but it is also distinctly for a different audience. I just yeah. think, you know, mm-hmm. at this point you've, you've heard us talk about how these two, if you're a collector looking for something that's going to fill a satisfying hole in your shelf, neither of these yeah. are going to do it, but neither of them are distinctly a, an awful choice. You're, you're not going to go wrong with yeah, these. I agree. All right. Then that's the show as always. Thank you 
to my hosts, Nicole and Brandon. Thank you to all you amazing humans out here. Thank you so very much for listening. You're the reason why we do this. Visit campsite.bio slash notarobotcomics to hear all our episodes on nearly any podcast platform and patreon.com slash notarobotpodcast for the exclusive content that we make for our patrons from all our offerings. Kids Corner, Real Talk, Movies, TV, and more. Again, starting at just $1 a month. Visit notarobotpodcast.com and that will take you everywhere you need to go for everything not a robot. And with that, there's only one way we say goodbye around here. Until next time, be good to each other and don't be a robot. Shut up.